What does the story of Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler have in common and different? Hello and welcome to Rooted Together Podcast, the podcast which aims to root you in Christ through his word together. I'm your host, Charles Hegwood, and today we are in Luke chapter 19. Things now begin to move toward ahead. Jesus is heading towards the teeth of the enemy. You see, chapter 19 captures several interactions which show Jesus completely in control and calling all people who will follow him to follow him. And as we look at these different stories, we're going to look at the main themes of each one. So we begin in verse 1 of chapter 19, where Jesus is entering Jericho and passing through. He's going towards Jerusalem. And this is the story of Zacchaeus. And if you grew up in Sunday schools in the South, you probably know the song that Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. And he climbs up a sycamore tree. It's what we sang often when I was a kid. So I was very familiar with the details of that story just from singing that song. But when you read it, in the context of Luke 19, and when you read it in the greater context of Luke as a whole, you begin to see more and more. You see, the main theme here is that we are to receive the Lord with joy, giving of everything we have to follow him. Now, what I want to do as we look at Zacchaeus is compare Zacchaeus with the rich young ruler. So we meet Zacchaeus. He's a sinner. He's a tax collector. We talked about that in the last chapter, that the lowest of the low in society. Now, they were rich, they were wealthy because they took a lot of money from people, but they were not high up on people's social statuses. They were a very low social status because of their job, because of their wealth and how they achieved it. But what I want to do is compare Zacchaeus with that rich young ruler. You see, Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus. Let's do this. Let's say it this way. Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, and the rich young ruler is seeking eternal life. Now, both very similar in that the rich young ruler isn't necessarily seeking a bad thing, but it's just interesting the difference between the rich young ruler seeking eternal life and going up to Jesus and saying, how do I get eternal life? And Zacchaeus simply seeking to get a glimpse of Jesus. That's a stark difference. Now, they're both wealthy people. One is respected, one is not. But one will walk away justified, and one walks away sad as well. Spoiler alerts. So as we continue looking at these two, Zacchaeus knows that he is unworthy, whereas the rich young ruler thinks that his wealth and his good works should be enough to save him. The rich young ruler can't get a, give up his wealth to follow Jesus, and yet we'll see that Zacchaeus gives up his wealth willingly, joyfully, and without even being prompted. His giving is out of an overflow of joy, the joy of salvation. Jesus is worth more than all the things we have in this earth. Yet the people who should be celebrating Zacchaeus' turn 
Zacchaeus' repentance and Zacchaeus' giving up his ill-gotten gains and giving it back to the people he took from, that should be a celebrated thing. And yet what we see is the very people who should be celebrating are grumbling because Jesus would spend time with a sinner. And it ends with a old adage you might remember from the passage where he talks about the lamb and he talks about the coin. He talks about the prodigal son. What was lost has been found. He says, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. These are Jesus's words to those grumbling people. What was lost has been found. Jesus came to do such things. So let us rejoice when a sinner comes to Jesus. Let us rejoice when we turn to Jesus. And so as we look at that story real quick, you have Zacchaeus, verse 3, he's small in stature. Verse 4, he runs ahead and he climbs up the sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he, that is Jesus, looked up and he sees Zacchaeus and says, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and received him, that is he, he Zacchaeus, received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, that's the Pharisees, that's the crowd. Those are the people who should be celebrating this this change. They should be celebrating the fact Zacchaeus, in just a few verses, will say, I will give back fourfold what I defrauded. He's going to pretty much give away all that he has because he realizes they are ill-gotten gains, and they all grumbled instead. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. By the way, he's a repentant sinner in this case because he tells Jesus in verse 8, he goes, Behold, Lord, I'll give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come into this house since he is also a son of Abraham. Now, compare Jesus' interactions with Zacchaeus to the rich young ruler. At the rich young ruler, he says, one thing you lack, give away everything you have and follow me. And the man turns away sad, whereas Zacchaeus comes up to Jesus and says, I will give away everything to the poor and give fourfold to those I've defrauded. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. Notice the difference what an occasion for rejoicing, and a rejoicing that we all should be joining in when a re- sinner repents, we should rejoice. So that leads Jesus in verse 11, he says, and as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. So as, he, as they are hearing Jesus talk about salvation visiting the house of Zacchaeus, he tells them a parable. It's related to their grumbling. It's related to their attitudes towards Zacchaeus, and he tells them the parable of the ten menace. It's similar to the parable of the ten talents. It may be the same parable in a different context here. Uh, in the, the big idea of this parable within the context in the context in the culture of chapter 19 is don't waste what God has given you. You see, you have ten servants They're given money, and they're told to use it for business. And we check in on three of those in a little while. The nobleman is going off when he returns. He wants to see what they've done with his stuff. Uh, Two of them have done well. One invested it and got 10. The other invested it and got 5. They were rewarded for this. 
And then one of the servants put it in a paper and he hid it so it wouldn't be stolen and returns the one minus or minus. The two that grew the money are rewarded. The one who doesn't grow the money, the one who hid it, had what he was given taken away. So at the end of it, he has it taken away and given to the other ones. Then there are the enemies of the nobleman that are also mentioned in this parable, which is different from the ten talents that you often read in other gospels. Luke records a slightly different parable. There are also the citizens of the nobleman's land, and he goes to receive the kingdom, and they send word to, like, you know, get rid of this guy. We don't want him as king. Well, at the end of the parable, they are slaughtered. So the message of this parable is clear. We are to use wisely, responsibly, the resources that God has given us. If not, whether we don't use it or oppose him, there is slaughter, and there is the taking away of God's blessing. There's judgment. So what will we do with Jesus? Will we accept or reject him? Will we use the blessings and the giftings that he has given us? Or will we, like that unfaithful servant, squander them? These are weighty questions worthy of our attention as we read chapter 19 of Luke. Don't be those who grumble. You will be destroyed if you do. You will be judged. There is a harsh judgment for you. Don't be the Pharisees. Now, here's the relation. The Pharisees are listening in. The Pharisees are those who squandered the gifts and blessings of God's word. They studied the scriptures. They knew they were to invest that word and to grow it in ministry, and yet they squandered it and did nothing with it and grumbled against it. Be instead like Zacchaeus, who gave back and engaged in active repentance. We move to the third story as Jesus prepares to enter into Jerusalem. And the main idea of this is that we are to worship Jesus as king. So first, we are to rejoice in who Jesus is. Number two, we are to use what God has given us wisely and responsibly. Don't waste those blessings. And number three, worship Jesus as king. Jesus sets his eyes on Jerusalem. The end is near. Jesus is entering into his final week of life on earth. His disciples go ahead and find a colt. He sends them ahead to find a colt to ride on, and they find it. And I love the connection here with chapter 2 and the shepherds, just as it had been told them. This should hearken back to chapter 2 language. What does it mean? It means that Jesus is in complete control of all that is happening and all that will happen in the next few chapters. It's not outside of his control. He says there's going to be a cult, and there is right where he said it. He said people are going to ask you what to do, and this is what you tell them, and they'll let you go. And that happened. It happened just as he had told them. He is in complete control because he is king. As he rides into Jerusalem on that colt, people, starting with those who follow him, his disciples, this would be the greater crowd of disciples, begin to praise Jesus. Why? Because he is worthy of praise. We owe Jesus praise and worship. Why? Because Jesus is the king. How do we praise him? We praise him for what he has done. 
And that's what they're doing. They're praising Jesus for all the works that he had done. And that's what they're doing. We must praise Jesus as well for all that he has done and all that he will do in our lives. He is owed worship. So notice as the Pharisees watch this, here's the grumbling. Oh, these people are praising you. Make them be quiet. And I want you to notice what Jesus says. It's very important. They question if the people should be worshiping him. And Jesus says, if not them, then all of creation will cry out. He says, these very rocks will cry out, praise to me. Jesus will be worshiped. The question is, will we join in the worship of the king who rides a colt, seeks the lost, rewards those who do his commands? Or will we be those who are silent? And as we look at the rest of this chapter, we're almost done here. As we look at part four, we have the fact that sin breaks the heart of Jesus. Jesus sees the lostness of a city that once set as the capital of a country meant to proclaim God's greatness. He looks over Jerusalem, and I love it, verse 41, as he drew near to the city, he wept over it. Their sin and the rejection of him breaks his heart. And he says, would that you even, would you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but they are now hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades. And he continues to dole out what will happen to Jerusalem. And he says, oh, if you would have just gathered other parts, other gospels rather will record this. If you just gathered under my wings, I would have protected you. The heart of God, he loves the people in Jerusalem, but sin, their sin and their rejection breaks his heart. And it sat as the capital city that was supposed to proclaim to the world, God is great. And now it sits in spiritual ruin and decay. All of the religious icons were mere shadows of the one who was meant, who they were meant to worship. Think about the, the, the temple. Think about the Ark of the Covenant. They were just shadows of the one who was standing in their midst and they missed it. Jerusalem sits shrouded in spiritual darkness, and this breaks the heart of our Savior. Oh, how Jesus mourns and he weeps over people's sin and their brokenness. Our sin hurts our King, yet Jesus' sorrow is in itself grace. And I want you to see this. God need not mourn over our sin. He does not need to do this. He could merely leave us to our own devices. He could merely wipe us out in his wrath. He doesn't need to mourn over us, and yet he was broken. This is love. This is mercy. This is grace. It is baffling that Jesus would even care, and yet he cares so much he weeps for those people. He could have wiped us out with his wrath, but instead he cares and he loves. And in the last part of this chapter, he cleans the temple. That thing that was meant to be the shadow that pointed to him has become a house of robbers. People are taking advantage of it, gaining profit from selling sacrifices, which were also a mere shadow of the sacrifice he will soon make, and he cleans it out. And he tells them, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. He's quoting Isaiah. 
And he begins teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But the problem was in verse 48, as we conclude, they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words because they knew that he was different. He spoke with the authority of a true king. Jesus cleansed the temple. He mourns for our sin, and he will act on it. The question is, will you accept the mercy of our Savior, or will you stand in his judgment? Seek Jesus today. Rejoice in the one who loves you. Receive him joyfully. Worship him as king. Don't waste what he's given you. And realize that your sin does matter to God. It breaks his heart. Repent of your sin and turn to him today. I'd like to thank you for joining me in Rooted Together, and I look forward to joining you in Luke chapter 20 next time. I'll see you there.